This podcast is offered through the Sacred Community Project, an inner spiritual collective working to lower the barriers of access to contemplative and devotional practices. Through the universal teachings of love, service, remembrance, and truth, SCP utilizes modern technology to promote eternal values. Learn more at sacredcommunityproject.org. Welcome again, everyone. This is Sitaram Das, your host for today's episode of the Sacred Community Podcast. Today we have a live lecture that was recorded through the Sacred Community Project. And this is a dear friend of mine, a beloved elder, someone who truly walks the talk and has lived a lifetime of service and devotion and mindfulness practice and has just a wealth of wisdom to offer. Vasu John Seskovich is now retired, but has over 30 years of experience as a nurse, as a practitioner, mind-body medicine, meditation teacher, and worked at Duke Hospital where he was truly a, a pioneer in cultivating uh, the emergent mind-body health movement, right? Applying mindfulness strategies in the face of crisis, extreme forms of suffering, death and dying issues, uh, in order to increase and cultivate resiliency. And in his uh, career, he's applied these practices to over 40,000 people. So this is someone who really has practice-based, experience-based wisdom to offer. And in today's lecture, Navigating Uncertainty, he's going to share approaches that have been crafted from his own clinical practice, research, and his friendship with Ramdas. Every time that I hear Vasu speak and share his wisdom, I learn something new. I learn something not just that I can apply to my own life, something simple and tangible, uh, but also something that I can put in my bag of skills so that I can be of support, a better support person for the people that I'm serving in my life. So I highly recommend listening to this. There's just a wealth of wisdom that is both accessible, practical, and can truly relieve suffering in our lives. So today, the topics that we're going to cover are are a, a few. <laughs> Mind-body medicine, stress management, psychological support, spirituality, using the mind as a tool to promote healing, listening to the heart, intuition, and rest. Um, we're going to go through some listening skills and a, a little listening skill exercise. Um, exploring the potential for death to be a wise advisor in living a quality life. I'll share about Ram Das and other mentors in my, my life um, with, with an overall message of bringing loving awareness um, to uncertainty when it's present in our lives. So my feeling on 
on Ramdas's teachings, and I, I'm feeling most people here are familiar with Ramdas to some degree, and his original message came through loud and clear: "Be here now, be here now." But if you look at his last years in Maui, there was another message that kind of came through, and that was with loving awareness, and and that's really touched me because. And just be here now, it can be kind of like distant or, you know, other uh, personality characteristics can be there with the witness, you know, a judging or comparing or something like that. But the idea of be here now with loving awareness really kind of fills it out and um, gives, us, gives us a direction to go in in, in, in every present moment. Ramdas's teacher, Neem Kroli Baba, here on the right, um, with Sidima and Jivantima, uh, and I'm not sure who this woman is, but very close devotees of, of Maharaji. And um, Ramdas, at one point, um, when he was leaving India for the first time, was really struggling with um, what am I going to do with all my imperfections? Or you know, I, I'm going back to America. How can I be a, a, a good advocate for you, you know, when I'm feeling, you know, everything that's wrong with me? And he went to Maharaji and asked what he should do. How should he come back to America? And the message that Maharaji gave him was love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. And, and so I'm thinking, you know, in times of my life or, you know, times in our lives when we're working with that kind of feeling of inadequacy or, you know, not good enough or, you know, any of these kind of qualities that that love, serve, remember message can really be speaking right to us in that moment. I was able to... Um, get meet up with Ramdas when I was fairly young actually um, met him at his father's house when I was 22 and he invited uh, later on he invited me to be in a small class in Cambridge and uh, a, a picture from there and I'm in the kind of upper left hand corner there when I still had hair and <laughs> uh just it was a tremendous opportunity once a month we met and it lasted for about a year and one of the challenges was he didn't want the group to get so big there was no charge to it so he said that we had to be it had to be in secret and we couldn't tell people about it so it was really strange the the biggest most exciting thing happening in my life you know going to a small class in Cambridge and New York City with Ramdas, but I couldn't tell anybody about it. So I guess I'm making up for lost time and sharing about it now. Um, an, another picture of, of that class, um, this appeared on, on the internet right after Ramdas left his body. And when I saw it and zoomed in, I'm, I'm actually raising my hand here on, on the right-hand side, getting ready to ask Ramdas a question. And um, I'm, I'm thinking one, I'll share one question that I did ask him is I was invited to go to nursing 
school. I was a nursing assistant and I had dropped out of college. I really didn't have a great time in school. And uh, I was invited to be in this nursing program, um, but I didn't want to go to school. So I talked to Ramdas and I asked him, you know, should I go back into the school? And he said, uh, yes. And I go, well, you know, I don't really want to go back. I'm not sure you why. So I asked him why. And his answer to me was, you'll make more money. Now I could have, I could have predicted a hundred different answers that he might give me about why I go back to school, but to make more money from this spiritual teacher, that was, wouldn't have been one of the top hundred, but you know, I could say now it was, he was right. I made more money, but also I was able to, you know, see over 40,000 patients in the hospital teaching meditation and stress management and really uh, gave me a, a solid life. Well, when the class ended with Ramdas, I was trying to figure out how can I stay close to him? And one of the ways, um, there was a prison ashram project where in, in, in the 60s and early 70s, um, a lot of young people might have been, you know, arrested for marijuana, two joints, you get 10 years in jail. And it was just a horrible situation. And, you know, young people, they'd, they'd be in jail and they'd write Ram Dass a letter and, you know, he'd write back and send them, you know, reading materials and stuff like that. But he decided to create a, a prison, he called a prison ashram experience, prison ashram project, so that people could use their time in jail as uh, uh, to grow spiritually. And so as I was leading that group, I would, I would go around to different spiritual groups and I would invite people to be pen pals in our program. And they would send me a letter and then I would match them up with a prisoner and stuff like that. And so as we were getting off to our start, I asked Ramdas if he would write us a little note. And I think what it fits in with this um, idea of navigating uncertainty. I'll, I'll read it for everyone. On the journey of births and rebirths, each of us sooner or later much re must reach toward the light. At that moment, it matters not whether your body be well or ill, free or in bondage. What matters is the purity of heart with which you seek transformation of who you were into what you can become. To all of you who participate in the postal satsang, I send my honor. For by your act of participation, you are reaching toward light in this very birth. Somewhere in each of us is a place of clarity, spaciousness, peace, and love. In that place, we are together and have never been apart. May blessings surround you and your sadhana, love Ramdas. And I feel, you know, Y'all come in for a, a class like this on a, on a Saturday afternoon. You're demonstrating that same reaching toward the light. And, you know, I send my honoring and Sita Ramdas says his honoring. And we know Ramdas is sending his honoring as well. So another way that I, I stayed in touch with him, this is a poster back in 1981 where, where I arranged uh, three talks for him in in Boston, and 
you know, I, I love to look back at the price here, $15 for three evenings with Ramdas at the Arlington Street Church. So just a few key Ramdas sayings that I that I feel really fit with our topic today. The idea that we're souls and not our roles in life. And when we have that uncertainty, it's like we almost cling harder to the roles. But the truth is, we are our souls on this journey. And I think Ramdas, with that letter and you know, with this, is, is acknowledging that for us, souls, not roles. My role in this particular picture, um, we were in India together in 2004, and for a while I was Ramdas's night nurse. Um, as you can imagine, the, the um, rooms in India are not very handicap accessible, and so it was, it was a great honor to be able to be helpful you know, in that for him. Another key point of Ram Dass's is the only work we have to do is on ourselves. You know, and there is, you know, so much, you know, suffering in the world and so much, um, um, you know, suffering within ourselves that sometimes, you know, we get this all mixed, mixed up. But the idea as we work on ourselves, we're doing the most for someone else. So, you know, it, it, it sounds, I know it could sound like a little selfish, but that idea of like when we're able to like maybe let go of some fear, let, let go of some anger, bring in some forgiveness, study, go into a little more depth of wisdom, that work we're doing benefits ourselves, but it really benefits everyone that we become in touch with. Um, in this, being a nurse and involved in a lot of, you know, psychological therapies and studying, all my life I could never understand, you know, what is the ego? You know, the ego, the invisible ego, you can't see, you can't touch, what is it? And the ego is so, trick, so tricky, it wants to uh, confuse um, ourselves. And then one day Ramdas gave this little teaching, the ego is rarely content. And that really helped me be, because I, I, with my meditation practice, I, I, I know what contentment is. And so the idea that when I'm not content, ego can be present. And that has just really, really uh, helped me. So that idea, the ego is rarely content. Um, when, when, I worked at Duke. I was, you know, part, you know, back in 1994, we were bringing mind body medicine, alternative therapies, spirituality right into the uh, the main health system. And here's just a slide just giving examples of of classes I was doing and also that other uh, faculty were doing. Um what, another mentor in my life, I actually met Elizabeth Kubaras at, at a Ramdas retreat. And it was a seven-day retreat. We were in silence, but he decided to have a talk day, I think, on our fifth out of seven days. And I knew Kubaras was there. And so I went up and talked to her. I said, Dr. Kubaras, and she gets she gets right in my face. Call me Elizabeth. 
I goes, okay, okay. Elizabeth, what do you think of this yoga and Eastern spirituality meditation, you know, Ramdas is talking about? And what she said to me was that in the Bible, reincarnation was in there, but they took it out at the Council of Constantinople in 563. And, you know, so we started having this just wonderful talk about, you know, reincarnation and, and the, the, the reality of um, and practicality of spirituality. And so she invited me at that point to come and do a five-day retreat with her where she was the only teacher. And we had like an, uh, the first day that she started off asking people why they came. And there was 40 people present. And, you know, a couple people said, well, you know, I'm here, I'm a minister in a church and my church is the members are getting older and I'm, you know, I, I want to learn how to deal with death better. And she goes, okay. Someone else says, well, you know, I'm a nurse in the hospital and we got dying patients and I want to become a better nurse. And she goes, okay. And then all of a sudden the lady stood up and she said, my husband has got cancer and he's dying and I'm so hurt, frustrated, and he's in a four-bedroom and we can't talk together. And Elizabeth hold up her hand. She goes, whoa, this is wonderful. You are all here for yourselves. You are all here to work on your own grief, your own losses, your own unfinished business. And so she was giving us this incredible permission and that brave you know, person who stood up and, and opened it up. She goes, I call, usually call the first day of my retreat the bullshit day. Everybody tells me the bullshit reasons why they're here. You all are here for you. And, you know, that just mirrors back so much to Ramdas. The only work we have to do is on ourselves. So in navigating uncertainty, what, what, I'd like to encourage people first is to recognize this state when we're in it. You know, again, the mind is going to want to take off or the feelings of I need to fix it or all this kind of mental agitation is going to, but that ends up making things worse. So the idea when I'm in not knowing, when I'm in uncertainty, okay. Here it is. And I know one pressure a lot of people have is we need to have all the answers. For some of us, we need to have the answers yesterday. <laughs> but right now, I am saying we don't have to have all the answers. In fact, science doesn't have all the answers to important questions in life, as you can see from this list. Science doesn't have the answers. Why should we then expect ourselves to? So it is okay to not know. It is okay to be in that limbo. I'm not saying pleasant and I'm not saying comfortable. Okay. So when one enters or realizes they're in the not knowing, what to do next? And so one thing could be problem solving. You know, the, the American Cancer Society says knowledge is power. So there could be, you know, seeking a knowledge, 
asking questions, um, problem solving, the internet, you know, good. When you feel you've done what you can, you know, for example, I go into a patient's room, they, they had a bone marrow biopsy on, on a Thursday, I'm seeing them on Friday, and they're going to get the results on Monday. You know, so as you can see, in that limbo, there's a great opportunity for suffering that happens. No sleep, you know, and, and the, but then by the time Monday comes, the person is, is totally worn out. So um, in the sense of when you've hit that place that you've, you know, done the problem solving, you've gotten help, and you're still not knowing recognize the not knowing. Watch out for the thoughts. I, I found out that thoughts can magnify emotions. You know, if I'm afraid or anxious, and then I start getting the what if thoughts coming in, that's going to magnify the feelings and create more suffering for myself. So again, this can be one of the benefits of meditation where we kind of learn about thoughts and learn that I don't have to go on every trip that every thought brings to me. The idea that I can let go and then move back into the being here now with loving awareness. Jack Kornfield, um, a, a well-known Buddhist meditation teacher, um, I went to the 40th anniversary of, of their founding uh, Jack Joseph Sharon Goldsworth's founding of the Insight Meditation Society. And as I was there, he said, the person who has the greatest understanding of awareness today, and my ears perked up, you know, who is Jack Cornfield going to say has the greatest understanding? And what he said was, Ram Das and the loving awareness in the present moment the idea that he has combined awareness with metta, loving kindness, together in the present moment. So that sense of moving in that directions. Now with mindfulness practice, one of the skills we learn is how to peel back emotions. For example, some people do not like uncertainty. I mean, they've got an aversion towards it. You know, they don't want it. They don't like it. But that is a layer on top of the uncertainty. So the idea, I start peeling away. I don't like it. I'm scared. Angry. You know, peeling away those emotions, not having to go on every thought about them, but just healing them away, and just getting more and more to that simple, right now I'm not knowing. Right now I'm not knowing. And with that, you know, we want to be perfect. We want to have all the answers. I just add this line at the bottom, don't be hard on yourselves. You know, I call waiting and not knowing the biggest stress of all. I've seen over 40,000 people in the hospital dealing with the whole range of illnesses, health problems, tragedies, and it's the not knowing that's the biggest stress. So when we're not knowing that, let it be a signal 
a time to be gentle with myself, time to cut myself breaks, time not to go on every, you know, negative head, head trip about my, myself. So as I gave that example of, of that person who, you know, got the biopsy on Thursday, I'm seeing them on Friday, where I'm coming from is to bring more mind-body homeostasis balance, which can promote healing during uncertainty. So there's ways that we can do that. Mind-body self-relaxation skills, cognitive behavioral techniques. Here is, is my toughest way, social, social support and allowing people to help us. As I say, wait, waiting and not knowing is the biggest stress. The toughest stress management is letting people help us. I think it's easier to give to others, harder to let people give to us. Harder to let people give to us and receive. So during uncertainty, that could be a very, very skillful, not easy, but very skillful social support, allowing people to help us. Also, belief in conscious expectation brings the mind and spirit into helping the body return more to that homeostasis. So in terms of psychological support, I've got a, a real nice cadre of ways that we can do this. Now, it's not that we have to do all of them. It could be finding the one or two or three ways that appeal to you. I'm going to say work with your strengths in terms of a positive psychology. You know, don't feel like, it, well, now I have to learn all these other skills too. Go with ways that have worked with you in the past and then bring them, bring them to the present. So I, I want to say a little bit about stress management because typically when I say the word stress, what comes into people's minds is like problems, worries, tension, pressure. But what we've discovered in science, and I'm saying research going back to the 40s and 50s, is that stress simply comes from change. If you have changes in your life, even good changes, it can cause stress. Christmas, the holidays, a wedding, having a child or a grandchild, moving, starting a new job, even some people like coming out of the pandemic is good. All of these are good, but the changes still bring us some stress. Now, another important part of this stress formula is the realization some people thrive on stress. And, you know, I've had people say, oh, adrenaline junkies, and that's not what I'm talking about. Some people thrive on stress firefighters, military, police officers, ambulance drivers, you know, individuals that can have high stress every day and love it. It's what they do. 
where you've got another individual who has one little change and they're going all to pieces. You know, that individual makeup. And so another invitation with this class is that self-introspection. What is your relationship to stress and change? Is it something you hate? Is it something you thrive on? You know, just kind of looking, looking inside. Um, but whether you love it or hate it, stress is physical sending powerful chemicals into the body that affect all the body systems. And back at that Duke, Duke slide I had, one of the uh, doctors presenting, you, you know, he presented that stress affects psychology, the neurosystem, the immune system, the endocrine system. So it really can affect the whole body. And in one sense, whether you love stress or hate it, it can cause wear and tear on a person. In fact, sometimes I feel a person's like a cup of water. When the cup gets filled with stress, you add one more thing and it's overflowing. Whereas, you know, you don't add that one thing, it, it doesn't, you know, there's no problem going on. But sometimes that one thing, it causes it to overflow and then, and then we have the reaction. It could be, again, physical or emotional. Um, stress, what I've learned is that stress tends to affect a person in their vulnerable area. So I worked a lot with chronic pain. People who have pain every day, they're under a lot of stress, likely to be hurting more. Someone else, they don't have any pain, but they've got blood pressure. Under a lot of stress, blood pressure up. So that sense that stress can affect us individually. And, you know, physical responses, mental responses, emotional responses, and even spiritual responses, um, loss of faith, loss of hope, loss of meaning, purpose in life. You know, whether a person like believes in God or any spiritual faith in particular, I feel that those could be spiritual responses to stress. Stress, as we know, can affect the family. It can affect our work, hobbies, creative activities. So in, in this kind of world of stress management, I've come up with a definition for the word healing. And that is simply improving quality of life and or improving physical functioning. At any stage of life, healing, here I say valuable, I'll also say possible. Any stage of life. And even at the end of life, I, I was featured in this book, The Bright Hour. Um, I met with this lady one time in the hospital and I didn't know she was a writer for the New York Times, and she was writing a book on her journey with cancer. She was 38, um, had had a couple kids, and was coming to Duke for um, breast cancer. And it just was a, a real fast type and had chemo and uh, wasn't working. And so the nurses asked me to go see this lady and 
you know, I just went in to see her as a regular session. And at the, at, um, and that was, that was it basically. And then a year later, I got a text from a friend in DC. She said, John, you're in this New York Times bestseller. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> and she said, well, the, 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 the author called, she was at Duke and she called you Nurse John. I goes, well, maybe. And, and so she kind of told me the story and remembered. And um, I taught this lady the technique that I'm going to share with you all. And in the book, uh, she talks about meeting me. And then, and then the, in the next chapter, she didn't tell me, but she had chronic uh, panic attacks. She had this like lifelong pattern of having this nightmare that she was swallowing batteries. And then she'd wake up and was gagging, couldn't breathe for like 45 minutes or an hour afterwards. And then in the book, she shared that she remembered what Nurse John taught her, and she was able to beat the panic attack. And then, she, again, I didn't know this, but she was like related to um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the transcendentalists from, from Boston, um, Massachusetts area. And she um, had used, had access to his poems and diary. And, and he wrote this poem called The Bright Hour, which is the idea that sometimes, you know, with suffering, there could be a great deal of suffering, but then it it opens up and the sun comes through. And so she kind of had this transcendental experience through this technique and was able to beat lifelong panic attacks in her last year of life. So the idea that that there can, can be healing. So in terms of chronic health problems, let me lay down these three goals with healing. One is to lower the overall level of symptoms. The idea, you know, you have a seven out of 10 pain every day. If you can knock it down to four out of 10, your life is better. You know, the idea if you have a bad flare-up, shorten the duration of it. You know, that woman with her, you know, panic attacks that last an hour, well, if she could cut it to 10 minutes, five minutes, one minute, her life is better. Um, and cut down the number of bad pain flare-ups or bad symptoms. If you have it, you know, every week, if you can cut it down to once a month, your life is better. So the idea of bringing in these more reasonable goals to deal with chronic or long-term health problems really, really can help with the coping. So just a few cognitive behavioral approaches, mind-body, working with thoughts to change moods, you know, the idea of the you know, judging uh, I, in the hospital, I, I would notice a lot of men with health problems beat themselves up terribly for not being able to, you know, be the breadwinner for their family or not, you know, being able to participate with their kids the way they want to. And, you know, the idea of, the, of working with those thoughts, not letting the negative thoughts run wild, 
or cutting down on the duration that those negative thoughts go. And working with those thoughts, again, can be a way to help with our mood. Pacing activity and rest for pain and fatigue management. You know, people get into this, this cycle of, you know, they're hurting or they're not feeling good. They're down, in bed, hating it. They feel better one day. They want to go, go, do, do, push, push. But then what happens? Boom. Symptoms flare up. You're down again, hating it, frustrated. And then you're back in that cycle of overdoing it and then paying for it. So the idea of pacing activity and rest Rest before you get too tired. Rest before the pain or the symptoms knock you down. Very, very skillful. Simple assertive communication. I'm going to give a couple tips on saying no and not feeling guilty. Um, stress management education like we're doing. Duke Hospital did this uh, program for the staffs in stress management where they asked people to identify every day before bed three good things that happened that day, three good things. And so the idea you get used to that practice, then when you're having a difficult time in life or things aren't going good, you've got that tool of three good things. Okay, what happened? And you're used to kind of maybe shifting the focus. So here um, I'm sharing some communication rights that we all have. And the right to say no and not feel guilty when no is the truth. I'm going to go into a little depth with that. Now, I'm not talking about your boss tells you to do something and you say no, no. Because that might not be too skillful for your job uh, longevity. But the idea, you know, I've worked all week at Duke and the church is calling me for the bake sale and I don't want to bake for the bake sale. You know, that might be a time to bring this in. So two skills. One is broken record, calmly repeating no or no thank you again and again, simply avoiding sidetracking questions. Well, why don't you want to do that? No, I really don't want to do it. You know, just staying with the no, not having to go off on every direction, because sometimes people manipulate us that way, get us feeling guilty, and we give up on, on, on that saying no. So broken record is one approach. Another, to go back to the church calling me for the bake sale. I don't want to bake for the bake sale, but what can happen? John, can you bake for the bake sale this Friday? No, I don't want to. Well, John, everybody loves your chocolate cake. It's so good. How about making one for us? No, I don't want to. John, you're such a nice guy. I know you can help. Well, I don't know. And John, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really need your... Well, okay, I'll bake for the, you know, and then there goes my Friday night. There goes, you know, whereas sensitive assertion, listen to what the person says, let them know you hear it, but stay with the no. For example, John, can you bake for the bake field? No, I don't want to. Well, John, you make the best chocolate cake. Everyone loves it. I could say. I know I make the best chocolate cake, but I don't want to bake for the bake sale. Well, John, you're such a nice guy. I know you can help. I know I'm a nice guy, but I don't want to bake for the bake sale. 
John, what am I going to do? I'm confused. I don't, I'm not sure what you're going to do, but I don't want to bake for the bake sale. Broke, you know, so bringing in the broken records, calmly repeating the no, but demonstrate your listening too. Let them know you hear it. Stay with the no. So a lot of other good ideas here. Communication skills. Stephen Levine, incredible teacher about this whole subject of death, dying, and navigating uncertainty. I, I did a, a Zen Sashin once and wrote him a poem about the Jiki Jitsu, the person with the stick walking around, um, how I imaged them like death. And so I was, you know, sharing in this poem. And then he wrote me back a little postcard. And I've got it on the screen here for you all, too. Thank you for the poem. Yet still you think you will die. You only think you're going to die because you believe you were born. Who is that? You are the deathless. The body sails in the ocean of form. Go beyond the forms to that which simply is as it is. Beginningless, endless love is the bridge. Love is a bridge. And when Stephen left his body, I heard about it. I kept on hearing in his voice, deathless, deathless, deathless. So we're our souls. We're not our roles in life. This body is going to pass, but we're our souls. So I know there's this whole kind of feeling out there. You talk about death. You're going to make it happen sooner. But if life worked that way, my friends, we could talk about money and be rich. It's not going to put a penny in our pockets. In fact, with the latest research on hospice, people with the same illness, some going into hospice, some going into usual care, the ones in hospice live longer than the ones in usual care. So that idea talking can be, you know, a way to feel get better, talking about death, talking about our response to loss, talking about grief can actually help us live longer. So I, I've come up with this, you know, everybody comes up with their own way of, of handling life and death and, you know, just working in the hospital, I have seen so many people, you know, in their teens or younger die, in their 20s, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, that I don't have in me death equals old age. You know, death is a reality. And so the way that I've chosen to live life, kind of bringing that kind of death awareness, is to try to live three ways simultaneously. You know, I could die or be quadriplegic tomorrow. You know, I've seen it where people, you know, I, I've been in rooms with terminally ill people and a couple others, and someone else in the room died before the terminally ill person died. You know, the idea, we, we don't know that. We could die. So if, if that's the truth, we could die or quadriplegic tomorrow, is there any I love yous I want to say? Are there any I'm sorry's I want to say? Is there any unfinished business in life that I want to take care of? 
Do I want to write my will? Do you know these are all kind of valuable ways that that, that can help with this. Another way that I'm again trying to live simultaneously is some illness or something takes us out in two to three years. And we've all had this experience of COVID. You know, I, I looked yesterday and it, we're almost to a million deaths due to COVID. And I, you know, you could look back at that million people, how many of them thought that, you know, in this period of time, they would be dead. You know, it's, but that is a reality. So, you know, there is kind of a quality of life issue. And, you know, sometimes we make decisions. Well, you know, if I'm only going to live a few years, you know, I really want to do this. I really, you know, want to make that trip to Hawaii, or I really want to, you know, make this pilgrimage, or I really want to get into some therapy, you know, just, you know, whatever, just the idea of taking um, you know, the, the possibility that I might not live a long time to heart as, as a possible reality. The third way is that, you know, I'm going to live a long time, possibly, so I don't want to blow the retirement account. <laughs> you know, the idea that, you know, I'm going to have to take care of myself now and in the future. So, you know, I can't just say, you know, if I'm, if I'm only going to live, you know, another week, we're going to have a hell of a party this weekend, and I'm going to fly some of you out to join me for that party. But I don't know. I might live longer than that. So I don't want to blow my retirement account. So, you know, just in general, around this subject of death, these are examples of things that we can do ourselves to investigate death. Also, it could be offerings to other people. Um, how 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 can we help? And so, I've got that there. Hope, hope to me is a medicine. Sometimes hope needs to shift. Viktor Frankl, um, you know, was a psychiatrist, uh, Jewish psychiatrist during World War II and one of the Nazi concentration camps, and he said that. People who kept hope tended to be the survivors, and those that lost hope tended to be the ones that died. And I think the key is that hope is real, but sometimes it needs to shift. Um, I had a 22-year-old cancer patient who, a young man going home to die, and the chemo wasn't working, and you know he was going home. Um, to his family, and he just did this incredible shift. You know, instead of hoping to live a long life, he hoped for pain management. He hoped not to be a burden for his family. He hoped to have some heart-to-heart -heart talks with some of his friends. And his family, you know, just was welcoming him with open arms. He wasn't going to be a burden, but but the idea that his hopes at that point became more reasonable and was able to actualize them. So in this sense of uh, uh, listening, um, it's, it's a challenge. And Sita Ramdas and I have really, you know, uh, 
felt this and worked on it and he he um made a nice little um video for me and i'd like to share it with y'all volume okay taking on the pain and I left the hospital about six months ago and I did stress management sessions with people in their hospital rooms so you know for example someone might have got shot you know have a real hard time dealing with this pain and yeah, I go and see this person, or you know, someone who's going to have their leg amputated soon. I would see this person, or this child, 12 years old, with a brain tumor, or you know, a woman who's had a heart attack and never going to be able to work again. And you know, for your listeners, there might be like a feeling of pain coming up as I describe these different situations. And you know, I'm seeing eight to ten people a day. And if I took on the pain of each of those patients' situations with my, you know, caring heart, I wouldn't be able to go to work the next day. So over time, and I had a real graceful experience that I'd like to share about how I learned, you know, the value of listening caring presence without having to hurt and take on pain by doing that. And, and the, the, the way I learned that is, um, you know, and I've been doing this work for a while, so, um, but I brought Stephen Levine to a, a, a lecture, a workshop, weekend workshop, and he flew into town. I picked him up at the airport and I said, Stephen, where's Andrea, your wife? I could put up posters from you know, Atlanta to D.C., Stephen and Andrea Levine. And so to not see her, I was disappointed at least. But he said, well, she just found out she's got lupus and wasn't able to make it. And said that my face took on this reflection of my feeling of hurt. You know, I know Andrea, we're friends. She's had cancer twice and beat it. Now she has lupus. And being a nurse, I know exactly what that means for her future or could mean and so my face was full of pain and he gets real close to me and he says wrong answer it's a new moment a lupus a cancer and as he looked into my eyes you know my meditation background I noticed I was feeling pain and I asked myself the question is my pain helping Andrea, his wife, at all in New Mexico? And I'm in Atlanta. And I said, no. And I thought, no, I'm not helping her. I'm hurting, and I'm not helping her. Am I helping Stephen, her husband, who's, you know, my friend and, you know, sharing what's going on? No. He's having to comfort me. He's having to teach me. You know, it's like... And, and then my mind started racing, you know, compassion versus pity. Pity that state of, oh, that's terrible. Thank God it's not me. Versus compassion, which to me is touching pain with love. Love, 
you know, remember, it's not coercive. It's not trying to change. It's a being, awareness, touching that pain love. And so that moment really turned me in that direction of to hurt doesn't, what I listen doesn't help me. It doesn't help the other person. But to shift more into love, caring, you know, Ram Dass would call it loving awareness, you know, is good for me and my soul, and it's good for the other person because they've got what you just described, someone who's really listening, present, caring, you know, doesn't have to fix it, you know, can just be with it. But, you know, problem solving can take place, grief work, you know, there's all kinds of healing, please the word magic, that can happen with just through listening, you know, and caring at the same time. So I'm um, going to do a little shift here from what originally I thought. Um, in terms of listening skills, I was describing there the kind of PhD of listening skills, listening without taking on the pain. But in, in our world, so often someone is, is talking and the other person's thinking about what they're going to say. And... You know, it's like we miss a lot where there's some skills that could be used, simple skills. Um, and so I, I list a few here. The other of open-ended questions. If you ask a question that just has a yes or no answer, that's all the information you're going to get. You know, if I was a nurse in the hospital, I asked somebody, did you sleep last night? They say yes or no, that's all. Or open-ended question would be like, tell me how you slept last night. You know, the idea of giving, giving the person a chance to share more information than a simple yes or no. Um, nonverbal communication. It's said that 50% of our communication is nonverbal. So it could be eye contact, it could be nodding. It could be a smile. It could be, you know, our, our, our body position. You know, we're, we're sitting like this all tense versus, you know, I'm sitting here open. I'm leaning in. You know, so again, simple listening skills, encouraging a person to go deeper or share more. Um, summarizing or restating. I had many times in the hospital where a person would tell me this long kind of complicated story. And so I would summarize. And here's a key with summarizing. Sometimes I get something wrong and they would correct me. No, I didn't mean that. I meant this. And that is wonderful. You know, it is not any kind of message that you're not listening well. It's just you didn't quite understand it. And now the person gets to explain it. And so now you do understand it. 
So, so that idea of um, summarizing, restating, you know, reflective listening could be using the same words the person said and demonstrates your hearing. Or, you know, what I like to do is maybe, you know, change, change the words around or, you know, put my own words in it. And, you know, they, they oh, yeah, he understands. Or, no, I didn't mean that. And, again, I can um, take that information and, and go deeper. Sometimes people will tell you all kinds of stuff. And for me, it's like I'd have trouble understanding where in time this was. And so I say, oh, well, did you did this happen then and then that? Or, you know, again, just trying to put events in time, the person can clarify for you if you're right or wrong. Another listening skill, silence. Silence. And in the hospital, sometimes, you know, a person could be weak or confused or and, and just sitting there, just making the eye contact, leaning in, having it be okay to be silent inside yourself gives that person maybe a chance to think deeper about things and maybe come up with a deeper insight, awareness, or memory that they could share share with you. So all these kind of ways of listening, very, very valuable. But um, so in, in terms of revitalizing the caregiver, um, the idea that I've, I've already shared, hard to say no and not feel guilty, easier to help others, harder to let others help us. I had a real powerful teaching with this in the hospital. Um, a, a woman with cancer that had metastasized to her spine, um, she went paralyzed and was having a lot of pain. And the doctors came in on morning rounds and she said to them, I want Dr. Kevorkian, the suicide doctor. She didn't say suicide, but I want Dr. Kevorkian. And at first they laughed but then she said it again, I want Dr. Gavorkian. And so it was kind of a hush. And they didn't know what to say or do. And they stepped outside of the room. And, you know, as well as getting a psych consult for depression, um, the discharge planner um, suggested that I see her. So the lady didn't get Dr. Gavorkian. She got John Seskovich. And so as I went in there, what was the first thing she said to me? I don't have any stress. I said, oh, wonderful. <laughs> it's nice to meet someone. But then I shared a little more about my viewpoint about stress coming from change. And she she got fairly quickly that she had a hell of a lot of change going on. And so so she she, you know, she, in our, you know, I want to make a long story short, in our discussion, she shared about ways that she had kind of worked on lowering stress herself. And one of them was um, she had gone to Central America and like Habitat for Humanity, only they build churches for people. And I said, well, how'd that make you feel? She goes, oh, I felt wonderful. And and the, the people had a fiesta for us afterwards and it made us feel so good. And then I said to her, if you can go home now and let your family give to you, how will that make your family feel? And she said, good. I said, yes, good. So the idea that 
you know, letting people help us can make them feel good. And so I could share a couple days later, that lady went home with her family with a lot of love and support. So this, you know, letting people help. So um, I want to share about this work with mantra and mind-body techniques. And in 1995, the NIH Office of Technology Assessment identified relaxation techniques as beneficial in the treatment of chronic pain, person hurting six months or more, and insomnia, which isn't like one or two nights, it's a, a solid problem. Relaxation back in 1995, the science was there. Um, so we can work skillfully with thoughts. Thoughts can add to our stress. Thoughts such as worry, what if, and I'll let you add on what comes after the what if, because there can be a lot of what ifs. Um, rumination, going over things that happened in the past again and again. Judging, self-criticism. It said we can be meaner to ourselves with our thoughts than we would ever be out loud to another person. So this idea, what are a skillful way to work with thoughts? You know, you hear relax, don't worry, but how does one actually do that? Well, my feeling and my experience and my research, um, we got a $3 million, million dollar a year for three year grant to study mantra meditation where people would choose their own mantra uh, for high blood pressure and stress and very positive outcomes, both with people in the hospital waiting for angioplasties, heart procedures, as well as people who came to uh, outpatient class. So um, it was slow Christmas in 1977 at the hospital and they wanted to uh, see what happens in a, uh, with a machine, an electroencephalogram, when I did the meditation. And so in A, you know, you've got these leads over all, all over my head and it's, it's very busy. Well, the beginning is normal day today. But then I start this idea of soft belly breathing, not breathing deep or hard, but just aiming the breath to the belly. So there's a gentle rise with the breathing in, gentle fall with the breathing out. In the hospital, I, I encourage people to put their hands on their belly to actually feel this, but you don't have to take a deep breath. But when the belly rises with the inhale, your lungs have filled with good air, which tells your body safe. So you don't have to believe it. You don't have to think it. But just by doing the soft belly breathing, you get to see right here, the change happens. Then here in the second, in this B, this is called alpha brainwave frequency. We dream in alpha. It's a creative state. Um, I would say it's a healing kind of physiological state. Um, um, and then here in C, um, 
I showed this to a Duke neurologist, you know, who looks at these every day because, you know, me looking at it, I, I never looked at it before. And he pointed at C and said, this person is deeply, deeply asleep. They've been sleeping 90 minutes, a full sleep cycle. They say sleep cycles are 90 minutes. Here in this sea, deeply, deeply asleep. Well, I wasn't. I was meditating. I was doing this mantra practice. But my mind and body was getting some of the same benefits as if I had slept 90 minutes. And this whole, whole session took 15 minutes. So, you know, just a little science there. Three steps to the mantra meditation. The first step I've identified, soft belly breathing. Again, belly rises, belly falls, relaxation response, physiological relaxation response can begin. Two, body well supported. Um, I'll demonstrate for you. In the hospital, every day I could see people like this. When are they coming in here? What's that test going to show up? When am I getting out of this hospital? Oh, those kids are doing okay. But then what is this going to do? It's going to give me a headache. It's going to keep me awake tonight. Um, but instead, I've learned how to relax. Feel the support of the bed or chair. Let your body be heavy. Allow the bed or chair to hold you. So here I'll demonstrate. I feel the chair. I let the chair do the work. When I stand, I hold me. But as I'm doing this meditation or I'm wanting to relax, I let the chair, I let the floor support me, let the chair do the work. Everybody good with that? Great. Now, part three, silently to yourself, repeat a short positive word or phrase, the same word or words again and again. So when we got that grant, um, the reason, one of the reasons we got that grant is that TM charges people, let's say $1,400 and they give you a mantra. You know, so you have your mantra now that you just paid $1,400 for, and now you're motivated. You're going to practice because you paid the $1,400. Well, do you need to pay $1,400? And the answer is no. You can choose your own mantra. So I've developed a spiritual assessment to help me working with patients. The spiritual assessment was, is religion or spirituality important to you? For some it is, and for some it isn't. How about you? And so asking that question 40,000 times, I get four answers. One answer is yes. Another, I don't go to church, but I believe in God. I'm not sure about God, but I think there's something spiritual or higher power. Or no. And so I say go in the direction of the patient or yourself. If religion or spirituality is important, you choose a spiritual mantra. If it's not, 
It could be a simple positive phrase. Um, here, short positive phrase could be peace. I can do this. Easy does it. I am getting better. In this sense, we're talking about a cognitive skill, using the mind to help lower our stress. Um, now, if you're spiritual, a spiritual phrase. In the, in the Ramdas family, it could be, I am loving awareness. It could be Ram, 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 or Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram. Someone who were Buddhist might like a phrase, Om Mani Padme Hum. Someone who were Native American, felt real connected to Native American tradition, Wakantanka. Muslim, La ilaha illallah. Wiccan, blessed be. Do you see where I'm going with that? It, not trying to change another person, but having them use something that they already relate to as their um, mantra. And I've, I've studied the word mantra. What it means is something that protects the mind. So again, worry adds stress to my mind. Rumination adds stress to my mind. I'm going to protect it by the secret of the technique. When you notice your mind wander, kindly and gently let go of whatever the thought is, returning back to the mantra. So your, your, the research we did, people did this technique 15 minutes once a day, within two weeks, they found a great decrease of stress in their lives. Now, I know many people are busy, but the idea of taking 15 minutes once a day for you to lower your stress, to take care of you, becomes very, very valuable. So during that 15 minutes, the worry comes up or the Tomorrow comes up, letting it go, coming back to the mantra again and again and again. So in, ter in terms of, of, of the practice, you know, you can do this basically in, in, in any tradition. It could be lying down. The problem with doing it lying down is what? It's easier to fall asleep. You know, that's, and you know, you might need that. So that's fine. But in terms of getting, you know, moving towards that, the, the EEG skill of, of quieting the mind, um, you know, better to do it sitting up. So, so during the research study, people use the same phrase, the same mantra for three months. And I remember, you know, back at, at the beginning in the in the um, mid '70s, Ramdas would talk about, you know, using a mantra for a year. And so, you know, I, I, I've done that uh, a few times, um, using a mantra for a year. But just beginning, it might be for three months. You know, you're going to use the same phrase. And again, it doesn't have to be the most perfect just a phrase, a mantra that you're comfortable with. So, you know, again, for not spiritual, could be, I can do this. 
I can do this. I can do this. Oh, this feels good. I'm starting to... I can do this. I can do this. So just anchoring in with that phrase, then it has a power that then can weave into the whole rest of our lives. So just, you know, just a little, I, I love these two pictures um, that show our research, people just doing the mantra, those who did it 15 minutes once a day, these are four different stress scales, the palms, profile of mood states, perceived stress scale, the Spielberger state, um, and the brief symptom inventory. So even for physical problems, um, seeing great decrease within uh, two weeks after the class ended and then held for three months. And then people who did the practice twice a day had a greater decrease of stress, greater improvement than the ones that did it once a day but it was totally statistically significant with just the once a day practice. So this, we, we, we got a paper published in a journal and that's the information there on that. So during the practice, when you notice your mind wander, you let go and come back, right there, you have learned a skill. You've learned how to let go of thoughts how to let go of thoughts, come back to the mantra. And so that by this kind of practice, especially over time, you're building a stronger and stronger muscle to let go of thoughts. So to build a daily practice, um, a couple tips for that. One could be doing it at the same time every day, then tomorrow you don't have to figure out when you're going to do it. You just do it at the same time. Another idea is associating the practice with a behavior. So for me, uh, at the time, like I did it when I got home from work. Well, one day might be 5.30 coming home from work, but another day might be 7 o'clock coming home from work. Or it might be, you know, when the kids are taking a nap in the afternoon or before my lunch or you know, just a behavior then reminds you, you connect the practice with that. Oh, how to choose a phrase. Um, let, let's say today you want to work with, I can do this. Tomorrow you want to try, God is with me. I'd say, fine. In the middle, tomorrow, don't switch back to, I can do this. Stay with God is with me the whole time. The next day you want to try easy does it, I'd say, fine, don't switch back to God is with me, stay with easy does it. So I would say, you know, with today being Saturday, how about by Monday, settle on one phrase that you could use for the three months. So spirituality, very positive ways of working with stress and uncertainty. Um, I've developed this kind of model based on Evelyn Underhill. She was a, a writer um, in the early uh, 1900s. Um, she talked about three ways that people grow spiritually. One is through religion, and that makes sense. You know, different religions have spiritual practices and that can help people deepen their 
religious faith. But another way she identified was beauty, another pain or difficult life experiences. And I've added a couple more to this. One is service can be a form of spirituality, especially with non-attachment to the results of our service. Science, I'm going to say with a capital T, is a search for truth. And um, um, science, I think a real important part of science is if you don't have the answer, you don't have to form an opinion. You know, you just don't have an answer. We don't have that answer right now. Um, I, I'm certified in healing touch, and that can be like an energy work ar around a person. And I had this cardiothoracic surgeon once, you know, write a cons. The patient requested it, but he wrote a consult for me to come and do healing touch with the person. And, you know, which, you know, in, in the 1990s, this kind of stuff was weird. And for some people, it still is. And so I saw the doctor later on in the hallway and I said, you know, Dr. Crawford, you know, I'm just, why did you say it was okay for me to do that? You know, I'm just wondering about your thinking. And he said to me, if 200 years ago, you said, you know, you can, you'll be able to cut out someone's lung and they'll be able to live, I would have said you were crazy. And he goes, well, maybe in 200 years, we're going to find out more about that. So, you know, just that sense that the search for truth, science is. So with religious and spiritual practices, I hear, I, I list here some parts of it that can really be healing, nurturing, um, helping to, to move towards that homeostasis. Um, different religions, yes, but a lot of these uh, topics are, are kind of common ground. Um, it's important not to push, I feel, religion onto people. Some people, you know, they've been abused by religion in the past, and um, there's actually science hasn't proved God, so you've got a scientist, and they might not want anything to do with religion. So, um, you know, it's just, just be careful with it. I, I was told that, you know, at Duke Hospital, there was this lady in, in um, x-ray waiting for her x-ray. And this housekeeper came up, patted her on the shoulder and said, don't worry, honey, I'm going to pray for you. And she put a formal written complaint into hospital administration that the housekeeper was pushing religion on her. So, you know, just there, there is that kind of carefulness uh, it's a sensitive subject. So religion is one path. Another path for spirituality is beauty. And I include here nature, art, music, poetry, creative expression. Also painful life experiences can help a person gain spiritually. Um, at one point I did this uh, revitalizing the caregiver workshop and they had us write down every loss that we had in our lives by our ages, you know, from zero to five, five to seven, you know, 10 to 20, 20 to 30. And, you know, it might be, she was very liberal with the word, you know, loss. It could be the loss of a pet. Graduating from high school was a loss of a role. 
Um, and so the next day, they had us get out that list and ask us to write a gain that happened from each of these losses. And it was incredible. Every single loss, there had been a gain that came out from it. In our, you know, it was a room full of, you know, 20 nurses. So that sense that we all were able to do that has given me uh, a kind of a hope or, or meaning that from difficult life experiences, it is possible for something good to come through them. Sometimes time is needed, time. But so that loss and gain, um, spirituality, AA, and other 12-step groups are examples of people like hitting bottom, but then reaching out. Um, Kubler-Ross and her models of death and dying, the idea of going through stages and meeting a, a, and then coming to an acceptance. It's, it's important though with that acceptance, sometimes there's a resignation, which is a defeated, that's not what I'm talking about. An acceptance is an opening up and embracing of life as it is now.